Well, good morning. Oh, man, so good to be up here and preaching with y'all this morning. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching pastor here at uh, Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy, it's a privilege to be here with you uh, this morning. Uh, before I dive into a bunch of different things, uh, man, I want to say thank you to Nathaniel Summers. He serves as our uh, MC director. Go ahead and give him a big round. I'm going make it awkward. <laughs> You don't be awkward. He could be awkward because he doesn't like attention. But nevertheless, uh, he did a tremendous job, uh, man, preaching from God's word over these last three weeks. So I'm incredibly thankful for him. I got to sit under uh, the preached word uh, the last three weeks. Two of them were with uh, Nathaniel. And then last week, my wife and I got to go to Logos Community Church in Harlingen. And they send their hellos and they are praying for us, which is always a good thing from our friends and sister, brothers and sisters over there. Um, once again, just a quick reminder, uh, parents, uh, we do have kids ministry. They are regathering, but we're doing it slowly and in phases. And so just so that you know, in the event that you didn't see it on social media or hear about it elsewhere, it's twice a month. It's going to be the second and fourth Sunday of every month. That's when kids ministry is going to be gathering and it is, it is ages two through six. As far as what grade levels those are, I always forget you can talk to LC, who is on the second floor. She is our kids director, and she will hook you up with all of that information. But again, that's twice a month, the second and fourth Sunday of the month. We'll make sure to have it on the website in addition to social media so that you are aware. But please help us by sharing and spreading that, that uh, information. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and go to Matthew 28. We're going to go to some kind of a touchdown verse. We're going to go to Matthew 28. We're looking at verses 18 through 20. And while you do that, let me just set up our time briefly. We are beginning a new sermon series today uh, called As We Are Going. And we're going to unpack that little phrase in just a minute as we look at Matthew 28. And uh, this series is primarily on discipleship and on the variety or the various contours of discipleship that you and I are simply involved in, whether you actually think about it or not. And so we're going to begin with an overview of what discipleship is. We've never really done a sermon series that dives into, once again, the contours of discipleship. We've talked a great deal about discipleship when we walk through books of the Bible, or even when we've done certain topical series, it's usually been maybe one sermon and the rest kind of like pour out of that. But this time around, as we begin the new year, we're going to be looking at uh, six weeks where we're just unpacking uh, a variety of ways in which you and I participate in discipleship, but most importantly, how you and I are called to make disciples of Jesus. And so if you're in Matthew 28, I'm just going to dive into our time. If you've been around our church or church in general for any time, you may have noticed that the word discipleship gets thrown around a lot, and it could mean different things depending on where you go. Here at Storehouse McAllen, here is how we would define discipleship. We would say that discipleship is meeting people where they are and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. Let me say that one more time. You're going to hear it throughout the next six weeks, but I want to make sure that it's nicely defined and ingrained. Discipleship is meeting people where they are 
and taking them where Jesus wants them to be. This series on discipleship will serve as a catalyst through preaching, teaching, uh, preaching and teaching in order to equip you to make disciples of Jesus. The reason we want that so badly, the reason I want that so dearly for you is because if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, this is your role. In fact, discipleship is the primary mission of the church. A church who primarily does not make disciples, I would venture to say, is not a church. Okay? That's a, that's a bold statement. But if you think about it, it's the one thing Jesus told us to do. Okay? We decided to begin this series on discipleship for two reasons. And again, I mentioned I just want to unpack a couple of things. Number one, I don't, I don't just want this to be a series that we look at discipleship and then forget about it. Instead, what I want to do is to actually uh, form our entire year surrounding this theme, this concept that is discipleship. So even though we're going to look at a couple of specific ways of discipleship or specific contours or avenues of discipleship over the next six weeks, we're going to look at what discipleship uh, looks like in the context of books of the Bible. We're going to look at how you are going to get equipped and involved in discipleship in the variety of avenues that you find yourself involved in in your daily life. Additionally, we wanted to do this series uh, because if 2020, and I don't want to talk so much about 2020. I feel like everybody's talked enough about 2020, but I'm going to do it anyway for a short time. Okay? But in light of 2020, one of the things that was made very evident to us was that our approach here, now I'm speaking specifically about Storehouse McAllen, our approach to discipleship was uh, very one-sided. It's, it's heavy on one side. And that's not necessarily bad, it's just incomplete. And what I mean by discipleship being one-sided, I mean for us primarily, discipleship has been relationship-oriented. And now that's, that is a truth. I don't want you to hear that, oh man, we've done it wrong. Now that is a truth. Discipleship is relationship oriented. In fact, I would venture to say that one of the reasons uh, our church survived, did well, flourished in 2020 was because of the deep friendships that we have with one another that allowed us to disciple one another in the midst of some difficult seasons, in the midst of some enduring challenges. So obviously, relationship is a part of discipleship, but that's not all it contains. 2020 exposed, I should say it this way, 2020 exposed our lack of knowledge and worship of our triune God. In many ways, 2020 exposed a great deal of idolatry, whether it was uh, through social means, political means, even through the avenue and lens of the media. As 2020 exposed all of these things, we saw that there was a lack of knowledge in who God is and what God has said and what God has done for sinners in light of the person of Christ. 2020 showed us that we didn't need less Bible. We actually needed more Bible, but more Bible involves knowing our Bibles. More Bibles involve knowing who God is. 
2020 showed us that if we could improve by investing ourselves in other areas of our lives, then we should be okay. The problem with this philosophy, however, was that we spent more time invested in everything else except the person and work of Christ. Pastor and theologian J.T. English, in his book, Deep Discipleship, writes this about the state of discipleship within the church. What does it look like? And this one, let me pause. I already ruined it. It's such a good quote. Anyway, uh, it's not going to be up on the screen, so I'm just going to invite you to just think, chew. I'll go slow. What does it look like on the ground when we succumb to the lie that discipleship is about being true to yourself? This is when our churches and ministries begin to offer people what they want instead of what they need. This is when disciples have a greater, more exhaustive knowledge of their Enneagram number than the attributes of God. This is when disciples are more inclined to read generic spirituality books rather than the Gospels. This is when disciples don't have a first-hand knowledge of their sacred text or basic Christian beliefs, but have exhaustive knowledge of politics, sports, or entertainment. It is when disciples are more shaped by the practices and habits of digital secularism than basic spiritual disciplines. Here's what he's saying in light of the life of the church as it applies to discipleship. If 2020 has showed us anything, it is that we have traded our Bible readings for really good apps. It is that we have traded uh, a life committed and devoted to prayer for a really good podcast that does that for us. It means that we have traded um, our devotion to God in his word for being fueled by the media. Now, let me say a couple of things. Listening to a podcast on prayer is not a bad thing, right? Having various convictions uh, and being involved in various avenues of the media is not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is that we have traded those things for what God has called us to. We have traded those things so that we could ultimately worship them to one degree or another and have forgotten the person and work of Christ for us. We have traded those things and thought someone else will do the discipling for us. Someone else will do the work for us. The irony is that those avenues, those means are actually discipling us. And as they disciple us, we reproduce ourselves. We reproduce ourselves in the context of our home, with our children, or our family. We reproduce ourselves in the context of our offices, of our classrooms. And so it doesn't just start with me forgetting the person and work of Christ. It eventually becomes reproduced in the life of those around me. That at one point, because I trade these things for, I trade, for instance, prayer and devotion, and particularly just my time in the Word of God, uh, growing deeper in my knowledge and relationship with God, I trade that 
for things like media and apps and various opportunities, what ends up happening is that at some point, I'm going to assume the gospel. And when I assume the gospel, that will be replicated into those who are around me. And it only takes one generation for the gospel to be lost. And so that's what 2020 has basically exposed. And the truth is that we do have a lot of work. But this isn't one of those like, hey, we got a lot of work and we're going to get it done in six weeks. Because the truth is we're not. The truth is we have a lot of work and it's not going to get done in 2021. The truth is that we have a lot of work, but it must begin. This work must begin with our reorientation toward the beauty and splendor of God. And so my hope is that as we begin this series and this year, we would take seriously our relationship with Jesus, that we would dive deeper and longer into the pages of Scripture and cultivate a desire to be and make disciples of Jesus. My hope is that through God-centered discipleship, our lives would become reshaped as we fix our eyes on Jesus. And so with that being said, let me read Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll dive into these, to this text. Excuse me. Here we go. Beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray. God, as we begin our time this morning, uh, as we dive into your word, Holy Spirit, would you be not only present with us, but would you be at work in us? God, we pray that this time of worship would glorify you, where we sing, where we confess, and where we look to what you are revealing to us about yourself. May this serve as a time of worship where you are glorified. God, we ask that your word would pierce the intention or the condition of our hearts this morning. Primarily so that you would be glorified and so that we would be sanctified. God, we ask that uh, this time would be a pleasing time to you. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to begin with three questions, and we're going to answer these questions. Now, let me give you a little bit of preface. If, if you are a group leader, let me just tell you, there is not a discipleship guide for this. But with that being said, some of these questions are good for you to go back and forth on. Here are the three questions that I'd like us to examine this morning. Who does discipleship begin with? What is a disciple? And then finally, what does discipleship look like? Now, let me remind you, we are looking at an overview of what a disciple is and what discipleship looks like. As we move forward, we will begin to get more specific in a variety of areas concerning discipleship. 
Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you're like, well, I can't disciple anybody until after these six weeks. No, that's not what it means. You are discipling right now, okay? Just wanted to make that clear. Now, let's look at Matthew 28, beginning with, uh, beginning with the first question, right? Who does discipleship begin with? As we examine Matthew 28, I want you to know a little bit about the context. You see, at this point, Jesus has already accomplished redemption on the cross through his death and his resurrection. He has already appeared to a multitude of people, and in this section of Scripture, he is giving his disciples his final instructions. This is also known as the Great Commission. This is where he gives his disciples his final instructions. And before Jesus tells them to go and make disciples, and even how to make disciples, I want you to think about one thing as you examine Matthew 28. Jesus is calling those who would become apostles, those who would see the start of the church, those who are about to see the kingdom of God expanded to all peoples, those who know him. Before we get into the practice of discipleship, we must know that discipleship, at least within the church, begins by knowing God. We've got to get that part right first. Because I know some of you are out with your notepads and you're like, just tell me what to do. More than likely, you're already doing it. The question is, of who? Like, who, what kind of disciples are you making? Anyway. We must know that discipleship, at least within the context of the church, begins with knowing God. That is, that you have surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus, that you have repented of your sin and are now transformed by the Holy Spirit who resides in you. You, Christian, are a new creation. This is incredibly important because making disciples is incredibly easy. Therefore, that is not the question. The question is, of who are you making disciples? That's the question. And so discipleship must begin with knowing God. And if we know God, then we have been transformed by God. Notice I didn't ask or say, do you know of God? Plenty of people know of God. But it is the Christian who knows God and is known by him. Therefore, the Christian is the one who has been transformed. And if transformed, the Holy Spirit resides in you. Everyone, Christian or not, disciples. Everyone is involved in discipleship. Once again, the question, however, is of who are you making disciples? Knowing God means that we are growing, maturing, valuing, and delighting in the depth of God through discipleship. In other words, part of discipleship involves us maturing in our faith through the scriptures. We talk a great deal about this from the pulpit, but it is not simply just to say the same thing or be repetitive, but because the Word of God is our source of life. It literally is living water. 
The psalmist goes on to say that, that he delights in the, Lord instru- the Lord's instruction and he meditates upon it day and night, that he is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. And everything he does, he prospers. That individual, that psalmist, delights in the word of God or delights in God because he is planted in the word of God. While there may be valuable tools, there is no substitute for the word of God. And so the goal here is not to simply know about God, but to know and understand God more. The process and practice of discipleship is going to be always about our reorientation toward the beauty and splendor of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When we begin to talk about the contours and practices of discipleship, our aim is God himself. Our aim is not self-improvement, it's self-denial. We are fueled by the goodness and graciousness of God. Therefore, discipleship begins with knowing God. Next question. Well, what is a disciple of Jesus? Let me rephrase it a little bit. What are the the marks of a disciple of Jesus? Before diving into that, I want you to notice the words of Jesus where he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That tells us a couple of things. Namely, that the work by which he was sent to do by the Father has been accomplished. But it also tells us that what he is about to commission the disciples to comes straight from the top. It's that important. You ever seen Saving Private Ryan? Right? After the, the, the invasion of, or, or, or after D-Day, Tom Hanks is, is speaking to, to his, uh, his CEO and he tells him, I got another, he, he calls him John. I think his name is John Miller. I don't know, man. I haven't seen that movie in a while. Anyway, he says, uh, John, I got another mission for you. And this one comes straight from the top. Right? And in a couple of scenes previous to that exchange, you see a bunch of generals getting together about how they need to get this dude named Ryan out of, uh, out of Germany, out of, out of the war. Right? They need to save him. Like, it is that important, so it trickles all the way down back to Tom Hanks, who is a captain uh, uh, in the war. And he tells him, right, I need you to go on this mission. This one is coming straight from the top. It's that important. It has gravity. There is significance. There's a lot riding on this. And so when Jesus, going back to Matthew 28, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and right before he's about to commission them, what you and I need to know is that the mission of the church comes from the top. It wasn't this well-thought-out program on a whiteboard. It wasn't feeling out the pulse of what would become the church. It is the primary mission of the church. It is what the church is meant to do. In light of knowing God and being known by him, 
the church is to make disciples. Now, let me be specific. The church, not just one person, not just pastor or leadership, not elite Christians. The church, if you belong and have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, this is your mission. And it comes straight from the top. It is that important. It is significant. It has gravity to it. And so we need to keep that in mind as we look at the characteristics of a disciple. Let's begin. I'm going to give you five characteristics. These are found in Matthew 28. So if I go too fast and there's a list behind me, just look at Matthew 28, right? The first one is a disciple is one who is sent by Jesus. The first thing he says is go. We're going to look at that a little bit more um, intently in just a bit. But nevertheless, verse 19, he says, go. Every disciple of Jesus is a sent one. And where you are is where you have been sent. The purpose of your sending is to make disciples and to expand the ministry of Jesus. That's your job. That is my job. Wherever it is you are, whether it is the context of your house or your home, the office, the classroom, the virtual classroom, the coffee shop, the pub, wherever it is you are, it is where you have been sent. A disciple is one who has been sent. You have been commissioned. In John 14, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, a lot of pastors and preachers uh, sadly, tragically mistreat that passage uh, in the sense of where Jesus says that you will do greater works than, than greater works than these will he do. A lot of pastors and teachers will say that you're going to do bigger things than Jesus. You're going to be better than Jesus. Let me just tell you, you are not better than Jesus. You will never be better than Jesus. That's not how this works. Okay. However, as it pertains to us making disciples, the expansion of the, of the ministry of Jesus is what we will get to participate in. It will be what we will get to see. And he is commissioning you to do it. He is commissioning you to expand the ministry of Jesus. So wherever it is that you are, you are sent. Number two, a disciple is a new creation in Jesus. We're talking specifically, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then that means you are a new creation. He continues, go therefore, make disciples of all nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now that's part of the process of discipleship. We're going to touch on that later. But here's what you need to know about that statement. That is, as a disciple, if we are to go out baptizing in the name of the Trinity, we need to examine that at the individual level. For instance, what does that mean for me? Not as a pastor, just as a Christian. What does that mean for me? Well, at the individual level, it means that if we are Christians who follow Jesus, we have been baptized. Remember, there's gravity, there's significance to this, right? And so we have been baptized. That means that we have been baptized in union with Christ. That is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. 
that we have a union with Christ because of what he has done for us on the cross. Additionally, that if I am a Christian who's been baptized, that means that I have also been baptized into a new family that is the church. Man, that means I'm plugged into the local church because I have been baptized into this body. But it also means that if I'm a Christian who's been baptized, that means at the most basic minimum, I know the gospel. My identity has been changed. My status has been changed. That means I am no longer lost, but found. I'm no longer at war with God. I've actually been rescued. I'm no longer in bondage to my sin. I have been redeemed. I'm no longer an orphan, but a son or a daughter. That statement about baptizing at the individual level is profoundly theological. Because you're not just spewing out random bits of information. You are a disciple who has been transformed by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That your mind has been renewed. That your heart has been redeemed. It means that you know the gospel. And I always ask the question, I'm not gonna, this is rhetorical. I love asking people the question, hey, what's the gospel? And they freeze up, right? That is an answer, yes. But nevertheless, that statement implies you know the gospel. We know the gospel, not simply bits of information, but the work of God in Christ for us and for sinners. We're not just informed, we are transformed. We are a new creation, denying our old self and walking towards fixing our eyes on Jesus. Number three, a disciple is one who teaches the things of Jesus. He continues, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Knowing the gospel has implications. Listen to me, church. Knowing the gospel has implications. That is, we must teach the things of Jesus. And if we are teaching, then that means we are learners or students. Christian, you are a student of your Bible. Whether you're in it or not is something else. You're a student of your Bible. As a Christian, we ought to be enamored with the Trinity and we have a desire to see more people come to know Jesus. That the teaching and walking out of our convictions are being observed by others. That means that discipleship is not simply evangelistic, it is normative. Look at it one last time. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. They're watching you. We got to be in our Bibles because that's the source of our life. It's not just some spiritual practice that sounds good. It is the source of our life. It is where we grow in our understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. And as we grow in that understanding, we can't help but spill it out onto others. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is what Jesus does for me sinners. We must 
teach. And if we're teaching, that means we are students of our Bibles. Number four, a disciple is one who obeys Jesus. He, in that same statement, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Obedience isn't something that we do so that we are accepted or loved by God. It is that we are loved and accepted by God now through Christ, and that is why we obey. Obedience has everything to do with joy because our lives have been transformed, our minds renewed, our hearts regenerated, and our eyes fixed upon the beauty of Christ. Obedience is a demonstration of our faith. When you couple your orthodoxy, what you believe, with your orthopraxy, how you live that out, you couple that with great humility, you make much of the glory of God. So again, when it comes to being a disciple, it does mean that we obey, but this isn't the the stern finger at, at people who don't belong to God. It is that you do belong to God and that you are loved by God because of what he has done for you in Christ and the Spirit of God resides in you. Therefore, as his children, we obey. Rather than be conformed to our former passions, we obey And finally, number five, a disciple is one who embraces the promises of Jesus. He concludes, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Discipleship is easy. Making disciples of Jesus, not always. However, because we have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, the one who resides in us, Christian, you can cling to the promises of God for you. As he concludes, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is a present tense promise. Christian, you can cling to the promise of God for you. A disciple of Jesus is one who clings and embraces to the promises of God for them, not only in the is easy, but in particular in the difficulty, or excuse me, in the difficult. And it is not simply that you are convinced by these promises, it is that you are also comforted by these promises. The marks of a disciple of Jesus are one who has been sent, is a new creation, a student of God's word, obedient and one who embraces the promises of God for them. So finally, what does discipleship look like? That's the last question. And the truth is, when it comes to this question, this is where it gets messy. Because sometimes it just is messy. And other times, if we're honest, we just have no idea what we're doing. So, Let's look at it. What does discipleship look like? Well, let's go back up to verse 18. Jesus said, or excuse me, verse 19, he says, go. That's what it looks like, go. Discipleship is and happens in the context of ordinary life. Now, some of you are like, I mean, I want a little bit more. It's not that exciting. Yeah, it happens in the context of ordinary life. 
The word go is translated to as you are going, which is where we get the name of our series, as we are going. So it's translated to as you are going. Making disciples is all about where you are and where you're going. For many, that's making disciples at home with your children. For others, it's making disciples as we head into our jobs. Others, it's making disciples while they head over to where everyone else is at because that's where everyone is. That sounds very general, and I probably just confused you. But think about it. We're like, you are, uh, what, valleyites. I don't know what to call it. No, that's not a good word. I don't like it. Vayukos. All right, here we go. Uh, <laughs> anyway, where do people hang out? Don't act like you don't know, and don't answer, please, so we can keep going, right? I want you to think on this. Where do people hang out? Apart from the schools and the offices. Bunch of people hang out at Roosevelt's. Bunch of people hang out at retail stores. People go to a variety of places, kind of, right now. Since COVID, in our neighborhood, all of a sudden, all our neighbors are coming out. So our neighbors hang out on the street, right? You know where the people are. And many of those places, you're already going there. So don't act like you don't know, right? Anyway. Discipleship happens in the context of ordinary life. The real concern is who we're making disciples of. We're either going to be making disciples of ourselves, we're going to be making disciples of the culture, or we're going to be making disciples of Jesus. Therefore, because discipleship happens in the ordinary contours of life, discipleship must be intentional and not assumed. It must be intentional and not assumed. Throughout the pages of Scripture and of history, disciples of Jesus have been made by disciples simply being intentional with where they were and where they were going. If we look at the pages of Scripture, we see the explosion of the church in Acts 2 as Peter preaches a massive sermon and we see people, yes, come to know Jesus, but as we continue flipping through the pages of Acts, we are seeing disciples of Jesus encounter and engage with individuals or families who were somewhere they were already headed. Whether that's on the road or going to someone's house or meeting them in the public square, we see people, we see disciples of Jesus encountering, engaging, and interacting with people in a place where they were already headed. They just became intentional about it. Now, we can look at the pages of Scripture, and some of you might say, yeah, but those are the pages of Scripture. It's no different in the pages of history. I had one individual once share this, and it was a really good thing. I, I shouldn't say it so angrily. Let me back up. I had one individual tell me one time <laughs> that, uh, hey, the, like the view of discipleship, your view of discipleship is so, it's very grassroots. And the truth is, I, I don't think it is. I, I don't think it's very grassroots because I am convinced by the pages of Scripture and throughout history that this is simply the way in which the church has thrived, survived, and flourished. So we can take it out from Acts. We can look at several other places of Scripture, but let's look at various parts throughout history. 
we can go to uh, the, the, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. As God's word is recovered and preached and shared, we see a multitude of disciples coming to know Jesus as they are gaining access to God's word. So God's word is being shared, proclaimed, examined, studied, talked about wherever it is people are whether that was in rural communities, whether it was over uh, a, a table talk at a really good pub, or whether it was at the university level, we see the word of God spreading throughout all of, uh, um, in this case, Germany, and seeing people just come to know Jesus because people are going to where they are. Well, that's the 16th century. Okay, well, let's, let's go to the, to the Enlightenment, right, around the 18th century. One of, one of the other times of the, one of the other ways in which we're looked at or we look at the Enlightenment period is, is also a time of great revival, particularly uh, on the East Coast. Now, let me just tell you, and this might hurt you, right? A revival isn't a tent, okay? A revival is God doing what he's already doing more intensely. And it primarily happens through the proclamation of God's word. And so we are seeing churches revitalized throughout the pages of Scripture as people are just sharing God's word where they are, in their city, in their town, wherever it is, everyone is at, and we're seeing more disciples being added to uh, 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 churches. Let me actually go further back. Let's skip around. Why not? The second century. The second century records about a, a couple hundred thousand Christians, and toward the start of the third century, there were several million Christian. Well, what happened? What, what happened that went from a small city to several million Christians around the second century? There, there's a book called uh, uh, the, the, the Ferment of the Early Church. And, and the author goes on to uh, explain that the reason the church exploded in the second century Right? We're seeing millions and millions of Christians just impact their cities and their culture and uh, various offices of public service. We're seeing all of these things happen, and he concludes the reason so many uh, people were converting to Christianity is because Christians were intentional about their one neighbor. After researching, so this one professor, I can't remember his name, Creter is his last name, but he goes on to say, I am a scholar at the second century. I don't know anything about the first, I don't know anything about the third, so I'm going to put all my life's work into the second century. And after looking at several church history records, after looking at several places of, uh, of history throughout this time, he concludes one thing, Christians were intentional with their neighbor. So the way they were responding, acting, serving, loving other people, talking to other people, more people started asking, why do you do the things that you do? And to the early church, what's interesting is to the early church, they didn't see it as an evangelistic effort. It was very plain to them. Well, why is it that you do things the way you do. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is the God I serve. He's the God from the scriptures. Let me tell you what he has done for me. Very plain, very simple. And what we see is the church begin to grow and grow, and it grows so much that it begins to impact the Roman Empire. Throughout the pages of scripture and throughout Countless times in history, 
the church has flourished and survived because of individuals who were disciples of Jesus that made disciples of Jesus. You are proof of that. You are proof of centuries of discipleship. I think it works. The church has not only survived but flourished, but not because discipleship was programmed, but because the church knew that the primary pathway of discipleship was God. It is a movement aimed at knowing God and making Him known. Theologian J.I. Packer says it this way, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve Him, boldness to share Him, and contentment in Him. Discipleship intentionally happens in the context of ordinary life where we know God and where we make Him known. Now, before I continue, as I've given you this big overview of discipleship, I know it doesn't sound very practical because I know some, I know one of the questions might be, okay, got it, I need a disciple, but what do I do? What do I, what do, I do at Tuesday, like at, at 11.03? What do, I, what do I do? Remember, discipleship happens in ordinary life and whether or not you're being intentional about making disciples of Jesus. So I'll give you one example. I have this young dude, um, and uh, he was telling me about his job, and he was asking me similar questions to this. And he was asking me, man, how do I, how do I make disciples at work? And I said, well, well, what do you do while you're at work? He says, well, we're changing tires. And, and man, every once in a while, I might, have to, I might get some conversation in between vehicles. And then there are these moments where after work, we get to have more conversations. And I was like, okay, great. So what are you talking about in those conversations? And he says, man, well, well I've shared the gospel with some of them. What, what, what do you think I should do next? Uh, keep sharing it. And keep loving them and keep serving them and keep working with them and keep honoring them and keep respecting them. Do what you are doing intentionally. Serve them well. And when they ask, don't hesitate. Uh, that's it. And so he then says, calls me. Hey, a couple of guys from my work asked me about Jesus today. Well, what'd you do? Well, I told them about Jesus. Okay. So now what? And he says, I don't know. What do I do? I like, Go back and do it again. <laughs> and so these guys text him from time to time. One said, I think, I think it was, hey, I want to walk through the gospel of John with you. I've never read it. And he was like, okay. So he calls me. And he says, what do you think I should do? I think you should walk through the gospel of John with him. <laughs> and he goes, okay. I said, all right. Okay, bye. You're right, you're right. <laughs> and, and so, but the idea here is that all he lacked in that moment was experience. That was it. That was it. That's all he lacked in that moment. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He was commissioned and sent where he was at his place of work, and he disciples a couple of the guys from time to time, as often as he can, as intentionally as he can, as time allows. And now they call him outside of work. I don't know if those guys are Christians or not, but I know they are curious, and they're looking to him because they're watching him. 
Okay, so he better be in his Bible because when those questions come, he might either have an answer or say, I actually don't know. Let's look at this together. There's that humility aspect of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And the truth is, it's not always that cut and dry. I get that. But that is an example of simply walking about your ordinary life, being intentional about who Jesus is, and then having people ask you about him. And sometimes that question may not necessarily come to you uh, right away. It's not going to come to you for him. It happened after a couple of weeks. He and I share a a mutual friend, a friend that we've been praying for for several years. And we have made very uh, explicit attempts and had explicit opportunities to share the gospel with him. Well, this past summer, after six years, this dude comes to know Jesus, right? But you know what we were doing? We were talking about working out. It happens in the context of ordinary life. And so because it happens in the context of ordinary life, the question is not only who are you making disciples of, but if you are making disciples of Jesus, are you being intentional about it? That's what it boils down to. So in closing, the the primary mission of the church, and and I know just by knowing church culture, not everybody is convinced of discipleship, but I'll prove it to you, right? The primary mission of the church is is to make disciples of Jesus. And church, we must be intentional about making disciples of Jesus. Reality for you must set in quickly as Christianity is no longer on maintenance mode. It must be a uh, mission. Christianity is no longer institutionalized. It ought to be a movement. And Christians... Anyway, you cut it, are no longer at the center of society. We're becoming marginalized. I debated last night and on Friday, I talked to some of the guys about it, uh, talking about this week's events, right? The, the storming of Capitol Hill. And so as I watched all of these people making their way into the capitals, I saw a variety of flags being waved. And if you're new or you haven't been here, you might think I'm going the political route. The truth is I'm not. I think you should have political convictions. That's awesome. Cool. I'm just not going to talk to you about them from this context. But here's what I will say. As I'm watching these things unfold, I'm an internal processor, so I'm constantly thinking, like, what's going on and all this stuff? And what are their hearts? Anyway, I thought of two things in light of the events from Wednesday. And the two things were idolatry and discipleship. That a person, position, or conviction was being elevated above everything else, and check it out, people bought into it because of the way in which they were discipled. And therefore, they acted upon it. Don't tell me discipleship doesn't work. In the hands of a godly individual who wants to make disciples of Jesus, we're going to see what the church has experienced for centuries and centuries and centuries. More disciples uh, being made, more people coming to know Jesus. In the context of particularly idolatry, discipleship will happen and it does lead to destruction. Once again, it only takes one generation Particularly if you are a Christian, if you hold fast to biblical convictions, it takes one generation for the gospel to be known to assumed. And within that generation, it goes from being assumed to lost. 
Everyone disciples. You are making disciples today. The question is, are you making disciples of Jesus? So don't tell me discipleship doesn't work. Do not tell me that you can't do it. And do not tell me that discipleship is not for you. I'm not telling you to make disciples of me, and I'm not telling you to make disciples of Storehouse McAllen. That would be a grievous sin. I am redirecting you back to the pages of Scripture so that your lives would be reoriented toward the beauty and splendor of our triune God. And in so doing, you make disciples of Jesus along the way because that's where you're headed anyway. So, in conclusion, if you're a Christian, let me just remind you of a couple of things. You can hold fast. You can embrace the promises of Jesus for you. Whether it's been a long week or a long season, you can embrace the promises of Jesus for you. And the reason you, Christian, can embrace the promises of Jesus for you is because you belong to him. And if you belong to him, that means your heart has been regenerated. Your mind has been new, excuse me, made new. It means that you have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, that you are repenting of your sin. Therefore, as you make disciples, some of you just lack experience, like my friend. And that's okay. And you're probably going to jack it up, and that's okay. We'll share stories about that later. If you're not a Christian, well, actually, let me back up. So, Christian, what I want you to reflect on as we close in prayer in just a moment is the question of who are you making disciples? That's the question I want you to reflect on. This mission comes from the top. It is the primary mission of the church. If we do not make disciples of Jesus, we are not a church. Therefore, of who are you making disciples? And if you're not a Christian, I'm so thankful that you're here. I love that you're here because you got to hang out with us and I get to hang out with you. But I need you to know a couple of things. I need you to know that you don't know God. You may know of him, but you do not know God, which means that you are still at war with God, which means that there is still a fence of separation and you are not at peace with God. It means that you are in bondage to your sin. However, the good news of the gospel is that the Father sent his Son into human history as the man Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who lived the life that you and I cannot live and dies the death that you and I deserve offering us, the gift of salvation that you and I cannot earn. And he is ready and willing to pardon any sinner who turns to him in repentance. And so you can come to know God today in Christ. So church, as I conclude, even though I've said that three times, as I conclude... The purpose of discipleship is not only that it happens intentionally in the context of ordinary life, but the purpose of discipleship is that we are being reoriented toward the beauty and splendor of our triune God. Let's pray. God, as we, uh, as we begin to wrap this part of our time up, 
Lord, I pray that as we have spent a great deal of time in prayer this morning, that we would continue to um, fix and focus our eyes on Jesus. That as we have examined and looked at your word, that you, Holy Spirit, have cut through the condition of our heart. That you have revealed our sin while at the same time convicting us of our sin while at the same time comforting us. God, we, we define discipleship as, as meeting people where they are and taking them to where Jesus wants them to be. And, and the reason we define discipleship that way is because that's exactly what you do for us in Christ. That you meet us where you are in our sin with your grace and take us to where you want us to be by the power of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying us throughout this life. And so, Lord, very simplistically, may we be the kind of people whose eyes are focused on the person and work of Jesus, enamored with you, Father, and thankful for you, Spirit, Holy Spirit. May we be that kind of a church. May we be the kind of church that is so planted in your word that we delight in your instruction and vice versa, that we delight in your word, that we meditate on your word because we are planted, just like the psalmist tells us. And as we are planted in your word, as we are being confronted with humility, and may that be something that is reflected to others who are around us. May we be reminded of Jesus' work for us. And as we make disciples, may we cling to the promises you have given us in Christ. And so God, in conclusion, let me, let me close with the words from the psalmist where he writes, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. Amen.